can be uncomfortable for us to talk about some things in Scripture. One of those things is God's hatred. Nevertheless, the Scriptures themselves don't shy away from speaking of things that God hates. For example, consider Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19. There are six things that Yahweh hates, seven that are an abomination to Him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. The Lord also hates pagan worship practices, according to Deuteronomy 12, 31, where He commands the people of Israel, "...you shall not worship Yahweh your God in that way, for every abominable thing that Yahweh hates..." They have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. I saw a disturbingly gross YouTube video the other day where a woman was providing instruction in at-home abortion, and she was shaping the act of abortion as a religious ritual, describing it as a sacred act, complete with incense burning, meditation, a way to say a blessing over the abortion pill the woman is about to take, and what looks very much like an altar in the background. Child sacrifice on display on YouTube. Yes, the Lord hates that. But even Israel's own worship practices became an abomination to the Lord as they hypocritically offered sacrifices, continued to celebrate the Lord's appointed festivals. Yahweh says this through the prophet Isaiah, In Isaiah 1.14, Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Likewise, in Amos 5.21-23, we read, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. And the Jews were sent into exile because of their blatant worship of false gods. As he told the Jews who had escaped to Egypt in Jeremiah 44, 2-5, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, You have seen all the disaster that I brought upon Jerusalem and upon all the cities of Judah. Behold, this day they are a desolation and no one dwells in them because of the evil that they committed provoking me to anger, in that they went to make offerings and serve other gods that they knew not, neither they, nor you, nor your fathers. Yet I persistently sent to you all my servants, the prophets, saying, Oh, do not do this abomination that I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ear to turn from their evil and make no offerings to other gods. Yes, our God hates I won't take the time to read the handful of other passages that speak of God hating sinful people, not just their sins. But lest we think that God's hatred is just an Old Testament reality, we read of Jesus' own hatred in Revelation 2.6 in His letter to the church of Ephesus. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
We don't know what specific works Jesus is referring to here. And whereas here Jesus is commending the Ephesians for hating these works in his letter to the church of Pergamum, Jesus calls out some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, up to this point, perhaps you've noticed that I've left out a famous thing God is said to hate, divorce. With everything we've listed thus far, does divorce fit among the things God hates? Does God hate divorce? I hear it quoted repeatedly, but as you hopefully are getting used to, I become suspicious when people quote only half a verse to make some point. The verse in question is Malachi 2.16. Let's look at it in the 1984 NIV first. I hate divorce, says Yahweh, God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says Yahweh Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. The New American Standard Bible is almost the same. The New King James Version has it slightly different, but saying much the same thing. Look at the New King James Version. For Yahweh, God of Israel, says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence says Yahweh of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. But now consider the ESV, which reads, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says Yahweh, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says Yahweh of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. The ESV chooses not to use the word hate at all, but the key difference is that the Lord is not the subject of the verb. If you had only ever read the ESV, you would never be able to claim that the Bible teaches that God hates divorce. Why such a huge difference in translations here? When we see a difference in our Bible translations that are not just a little different way of saying the same exact thing, we sh what should we think? Our first assumption should be the Hebrew or Greek being translated here must be really complicated. Or there must be some ambiguity or difficulty in this verse. If you were to read most commentaries or study Bibles on the book of Malachi, you would find a comment, such as in the ESV study Bible, which starts off, the Hebrew text of this verse is one of the most difficult passages in the Old Testament to translate. We won't get into the weeds this morning. But if you want me to explain why I think the understanding in the old NIV and the new King James Version is off the mark, I'd be happy to try. Ultimately, I believe the Holman Christian Standard Bible has the best rendering of Malachi 2.16. It reads, If he hates and divorces his wife, says Yahweh God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says Yahweh of hosts. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. This section of Malachi is addressing the Jews who returned to Jerusalem and Judah from exile in Babylon. As we read about in Ezra 9 and 10, many Jews had married pagan women. Malachi may be addressing the same group of Jews at roughly the same time, or he may be addressing the Jews of the very next generation who were doing the same exact thing. If we combine Malachi 2 with Ezra 9 we may see more clearly that these Jewish men, whom Ezra lists by name for all eternity in Scripture, they divorced their Jewish wives in order to marry these pagan foreign women. 
their hatred of their wives resulted in them divorcing them in order that they could marry these foreign women. Thus the Lord, through Malachi, here describes that act as an act of injustice or violence against the marriage covenant, symbolized by the garment that the husband would have spread over his wife when they married, similar to what we see famously in the story of Boaz and Ruth. So, does God hate divorce? God certainly hates the things that lead to divorce. Look again at those seven things that Yahweh hates from Proverbs 6. Isn't it true that God hates all sin? But that's exactly where the rub comes in. Is divorce always a sinful act in and of itself? I am convinced by Scripture that it is not always sinful. Divorce is always the result of sin, and almost always by the sin of both spouses. But divorce itself is not always sinful. I'm confident in that conclusion mostly because God has divorced His wife. Would God do something that He hates? Maybe, in a manner of speaking, but He certainly wouldn't do something that is sinful. Jeremiah 3, 8, we read, She, that's Judah, the southern kingdom, she saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, the northern kingdom, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. He goes on in that passage to say that the southern kingdom Judah did return to the Lord, but in pretense, hypocritically, with a fake repentance. Nevertheless, in the Lord's extensive grace, mercy, and freedom, He did not ever divorce the southern kingdom. This creates a complicated situation for the Lord's remarriage of His people, promised in terms of a new covenant. But as we'll see today, the Lord's divorce of Israel was valid and legitimate because he divorced Israel because of her spiritual adultery. And he had the right to divorce Judah as well for the same reason. Is the Lord then free to remarry? Yes, he is. But the situation is more complicated. For instead of remarrying a different bride, he has the power to transform his bride. Why am I starting our morning with such a dark and bleak subject? Because I believe repeating the statement, God hates divorce, often has a condemning tone that leads people who have experienced the pain of divorce to feel as though they are second-class citizens in God's kingdom, that they are somehow tainted because of their experience. When a marriage comes to the end we call divorce, there has been suffering as well as sin in every case. We Christians ought to be more sensitive to the suffering aspect. Moreover, in the best cases, when someone reminds us that God hates divorce, this person is still taking this phrase out of context. Even if that is the best reading of Malachi 2.16 and it reflects God's word on the matter, saying it all by itself does not reflect or take into account the rest of the biblical testimony on the topic. We're not going to explore the whole range of Scripture this morning, but we are going to deal with one of the most important passages in the Bible that speaks about divorce. We looked at Matthew 19 pretty closely during our series on marriage and sexuality in 2020. Almost two years have passed. Hopefully you won't mind 
or notice a bit of repetition. As we enter Matthew 19, I invite you to open your Bible there if you haven't already. Jesus is leaving Galilee on his final journey to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. Crowds are following him and he stops to heal the multitudes of sick people among them. In Matthew 19, 3, we find a group of Pharisees showing up, interrupting Jesus' compassionate healing of the sick by posing an academic question in order to test him. They're seeking to trip him up on a live debate that's going on amongst the Jews. They want to get him to answer in a way that might cause the crowds listening to be disappointed in him, to stop following him because they might not agree with his perspective on this issue. But there might be an even more sinister motive at play here. Matthew tells us that Jesus is traveling through Judea beyond the Jordan, which is basically the same place where John the Baptist had been preaching. John had gotten arrested, imprisoned, and eventually murdered by Herod Antipas. Why? Because he had challenged Herod on the issue of divorce and remarriage. Herod Antipas and Herodias... Both had divorced their spouses in order to marry each other. Could the Pharisees be hoping that Jesus would say something publicly that would draw Herod's attention so that he might meet the same end as John? Look at verse 3 closely as I read it. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? The way they've worded the question with that phrase, for any cause, helps us know that they are specifically asking about Deuteronomy 24.1. From Jewish rabbinic literature from the first century, we know a lot about this debate. There were two basic schools of thought, and the phrase, for any cause, is at the center of the debate. Now, remember that the Bible that Jesus and the Jews read did not have chapter numbers or verse divisions. When they wanted to discuss a particular passage of Scripture, they had to quote the verse, or at least a unique phrase from the verse. That's what for any cause is. It's a reference to a phrase in Deuteronomy 24.1. Now, because this debate was so well-known in the first century, at least according to the Jewish literature we have about it, any discussion among rabbis about divorce would automatically take place around Deuteronomy 24.1. Look at just the first part of Deuteronomy 24.1. It's up on the screen. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce... The Pharisees' question and the rabbinic debate surrounded the phrase translated some indecency there in the ESV. In Matthew 19.3, the phrase any cause is one possible way of interpreting the meaning of this phrase some indecency. So the Pharisees are asking Jesus to take a side. We'll come back to Deuteronomy 24 in just a bit, but for now let's consider the rabbinical debate that was raging during Jesus' day about this phrase from this verse. One group of rabbis said that some indecency referred to some form of sexual immorality. So that according to these rabbis, it is lawful for a man to divorce his wife only if she's found to be sexually immoral. You might call this the conservative understanding. 
The other group of rabbis, the liberal view, was that the phrase some indecency referred to anything that the husband felt was inadequate about his wife. This was referred to as an any cause divorce. So for example, if a husband was dissatisfied with a meal his wife prepared, he could immediately go to his room, grab a tablet, carve out a divorce certificate, hand it to the woman and send her packing. No lawyers, no public record. Within a generation of this conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees, the any cause divorce became the universally accepted rabbinic policy. The any cause folks won the debate decisively, and he, the Pharisees sure seemed to be advocates of this position, and they want Jesus to weigh in on that debate. I suspect they expect him to be on the conservative side, which would likely make Jesus rather unpopular with Jewish men who had grown to like the freedom offered in an any-cause divorce system. Jesus responds by initially refusing to comment on Deuteronomy 24.1. Instead, he takes them back to the beginning. Look at verses 4 to 6. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus takes us back to the very beginning, back to the foundation of marriage itself. He knows that the Pharisees have gone wrong because they've lost sight of how marriage was originally designed. He reminds them that God originally created humanity as male and female, with the design and intention that male and female would unite together in the covenant of marriage. One man being joined together by God with one woman, fused together permanently as one flesh. Jesus combines Genesis 1.27 with Genesis 2.24 to make this point in challenge against the Pharisees' trick question. Leaving, cleaving, and uniting as one flesh are the primary aspects of marriage. Leaving isn't necessarily a geographical reality. Rather, a husband must leave his father and mother in the sense that he's coming out from under their all-encompassing parental authority so that the man is able to establish his own new family. Cleaving is a very important covenantal term. It vividly pictures the commitment of a married couple. The husband glues himself to his wife, and her, the wife glues herself to her husband. The word is used in covenantal context in the Old Testament to illustrate the faithfulness promised in a covenant. The act of becoming one flesh is certainly a reference to the sexual union of husband and wife. It is this that ratifies and celebrates the marriage covenant, but it surely refers to more. Husbands and wives are intended to pursue deeper, greater, fuller unity throughout their life together. With this reminder about the nature of the covenant relationship between husband and wife, Jesus shames his questioners. They're more interested in securing ways for men 
to dis- divorce their wives, to escape their marriages, than they are in helping men remain faithful to their wives. Jesus draws the conclusion and issues the general command, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God is the one who providentially joins together every man and woman who marries. He forges a spiritual connection between the two, whether they are followers of Jesus or not. Since God instituted marriage prior to the fall, prior to the formation of a nation or a people, we can recognize that marriage is what is often called a creation ordinance. It is valid for all people, and God is graciously involved in every genuine marriage. And Jesus says that no human being should seek to sever that union. As one writer points out, the marriage vows say, as long as we both shall live, not as long as we both shall love. The Greek tense of the command suggests that we could hear Jesus saying, man must stop tearing apart what God has joined together, which would be a direct condemnation of the Jewish leaders as men who were ultimately looking for ways to support other men in divorcing their wives. As leaders, their responsibility ought to be finding ways to help men maintain their marriages. The Pharisees hear Jesus' words as a contradiction of Moses. Initially, they see him as rejecting Moses' words in Deuteronomy 24. So they ask a follow-up question, hoping, hoping that the listening crowd will see that Jesus has pitted Scripture against Scripture, thereby, thereby nullifying God's Word. Look at Matthew 19, 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? They're stuck on Deuteronomy 24.1. This is the only verse in the Mosaic Law that specifically mentions the divorce certificate. Jesus allows them to back him into a corner, but he is not trapped. In verses 8 and 9, Jesus properly explains the point of Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 to 4 and relates divorce to adultery. Keeping verse 1 in its context by including verses 2 to 4 in the discussion is crucial. But he also explains how divorce fits into both human experience and also God's law. Look at verses 8 and 9. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. In verses 4 to 6, Jesus quoted Scripture. In verse 8, he affirms and refers to Scripture. But in verse 9, he says, And I say to you, Jesus' pronouncement here carries the same authority as the Scriptures. His word is God's word on this matter. First, Jesus answers the why question the Pharisees had posed. Hard-heartedness, unrepentant sin, produces a situation where divorce is a valid option. Now, it's common for Bible readers to make much of the difference between command and allow in this passage as though that solves the issue. The Pharisees had said Moses commanded men to give a certificate of divorce to a woman they were divorcing. But Jesus says that Moses allowed or permitted, not commanded, men to divorce their wives. But in the parallel account in Mark 10:5, Jesus refers to this as a commandment. So emphasizing the word allow, 
in, Jesus, in our passage doesn't take us where we need to go. Instead, Jesus takes them back to the beginning yet again. While they're stuck on Deuteronomy 24, Jesus insists that you cannot understand Deuteronomy 24 properly without considering Genesis 1 and 2. Then Jesus goes further in the difficult words of verse 9. Famously, the exception clause gives us as readers the challenge of understanding just what Jesus was saying. However, I don't think his original hearers or Matthew's original readers would have had as much trouble understanding what Jesus was saying. Jesus is actually getting beyond the rabbinic debate and at the same time providing the true implications of Deuteronomy 24. As we focus on verse 9 and the topic of divorce, let me repeat a concise summary of what I believe the Bible teaches on this topic. Divorce is always the result of sin, almost always the sin of both spouses, but divorce itself is not always sinful. This is one implication of the exception clause in verse 9. Jesus essentially says most divorces are sinful, but some divorces are not. What makes the difference? The reasons or grounds for the divorce. In a legitimate divorce, the severing of the marriage union happened well before any paperwork was signed. In verse 9, Jesus Jesus focuses on one person's guilt. Let's meet Greg and Sue. If Greg sinfully divorces Sue, divorces her because she burned his dinner one night, or in today's world, let's say Greg filed for a no-fault divorce, and then Greg marries another woman, Jesus says that Greg will be committing adultery. The exception clause Jesus mentions here is there to say that if Greg had divorced Sue because Sue had committed sexual immorality while married to him, then Greg will not be guilty of adultery if and when he remarries. Only Sue is guilty. But why is Greg specifically guilty of adultery when he remarries? Because he is still obligated to Sue. Sue didn't do anything that broke the marriage covenant. And therefore, Greg has no legal right, no biblical permission to divorce her. As theologian Peter Bolt puts it, divorce without prior marital destruction actually becomes the marital destroyer. In this situation, because it is what destroys the marriage, wrongful divorce is the same thing as adultery. It goes back to those marriage vows. Greg made promises to Sue, and Sue made promises to Greg. However, she had not broken her promises, yet he divorced her. This certificate, this piece of paper, does not by itself constitute the removal of marital obligations before the Lord. Now, once they are divorced illegitimately, let's not say that they are still married in God's eyes. Let's say instead that they are still accountable to God for the promises they made to each other. After all, if they reconcile, they will have to be remarried. They'll have to make new promises to each other. A new covenant will have to be established. Thus, while the second marriage in this case may begin with adultery, it is a legitimate marriage that God has joined together. So, if a Christian has done this, divorced his wife illegitimately for no biblical reason, 
and married another Christian sometime later, the only appropriate thing to do in the face of the Bible's teaching is to admit the sinfulness of the divorce and repent. Repentance, in this case, looks like remaining faithful to your current spouse. We have reviewed how Jesus' teaching on this issue merely confirms the actual instruction of Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, when we looked at Jesus' warning about the danger of divorce in the kingdom life discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, all the way back in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Today I'd like to just summarize that point rather than provide all the details. If you're interested in reviewing the details of Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, you can look online for that sermon from Matthew 5, 31 to 32, or we covered it as well in our sermon in the marriage series in 2020. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4, contains a piece of case law. Verses 1 to 3 describe a very specific situation. Only in verse 4 do we find the actual command. Let me quote theologian John Frame's concise summary. The hypothesis is complicated. A man divorces his wife because of some indecency. She marries another man, and then the second husband either divorces her or dies. The conclusion in verse 4, therefore, says that when a woman is officially divorced from one man and marries another, she may not, in this case, after the second marriage ends, return to the first husband. That's the whole teaching of the passage, explicitly Frame goes on to say, it neither encourages nor discourages divorce, but it only recognizes its existence and regulates it in this particular case. The reason given in verse 4 is that she has been defiled by her second marriage. This reflects Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, 20, uh, Matthew 5, 31 and 32. There he had said that the man who divorces his wife for no good reason makes her commit adultery makes her commit adultery. Again, it's because she still has obligations to the husband who divorced her illegitimately. Since her first husband is guilty for forcing her into that position, Deuteronomy 24.4 says that he is forbidden from remarrying her should she become available again. It's a penalty. The law is thus intended to protect the unfortunate woman from becoming a kind of marital football passed back and forth between irresponsible men, as one British writer puts it. And since he's British, he's talking about soccer there. The Jews of Jesus' day had come to view Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, as though it indicated the valid reasons that a man could divorce his wife. But there is no such law in the Old Testament. The legislation regulates divorce in a way that was intended to provide protection for vulnerable women. This legislation is actually a gift of God's grace, intended to curb the hardness of heart that makes divorce an unfortunate possibility, even among God's people. Jesus' exception clause should be seen likewise as a gracious gift of grace. He understands the phrase, some indecency, in Deuteronomy 24.1 as indicating some trivial matter, something not covered by Jesus' exception clause, the kinds of ridiculous things that many Pharisees and rabbis were willing to specify as legitimate causes for divorce. 
such as a wife burning a husband's dinner or seeing another woman more attractive than one's own spouse. Implied in both passages is that some divorces are legitimate and not sinful. And when a divorce is biblically legitimate, remarriage is also appropriate. Now, I want to broaden out our discussion just a bit at this point. We have to acknowledge here that this topic is not agreed upon by all Christians. Okay, there's disagreement and always has been. Some believe that divorce is never legitimate and always sinful to initiate for a Christian. And it's also never legitimate to marry a different person as long as one's original spouse is still alive. Christian widows and widowers can remarry other Christians. Others believe that it is sometimes legitimate for a Christian to initiate a divorce, but only in very limited situations specified in Scripture, but it's never legitimate for a divorced Christian to remarry. And others believe that it is sometimes legitimate for a Christian to initiate a divorce, and when that divorce was legitimate, then it is also legitimate to remarry. I affirm the third perspective, and this is the majority position among Protestant Christians since the Reformation. That doesn't make it right. But I say that to signal to some of you who might not have heard that divorce and remarriage might be biblically appropriate in certain situations, that whatever you have heard has been the minority report for a very long time. So, what are the legitimate grounds for divorce? I'm not going to make any kind of list here. Some people look at Jesus' reference to sexual immorality and attempt to spell out what that might look like in various situations. And then we would need to add Paul's teaching about the issue in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 15, about the case of the marriage of an unbeliever and a believer. If the unbeliever wants a divorce, the believer should cooperate with the divorce. And then Paul adds that the believer is free to remarry without sin or shame. If we look back at Matthew 19, 9 for a moment... This is one of the terrible results of taking a verse out of context. These sayings about divorce from the lips of Jesus are often isolated from their immediate context, isolated from their larger biblical context, ignoring the background of Deuteronomy 24, and isolated from their historical context, forgetting about the rabbinic debate that Jesus was being dragged into, as well as what we can know about the practice of divorce in Jesus' day in, in the ancient world more broadly. Remarriage was always permitted with a divorce in the ancient world. Always. No exceptions. The primary purpose of the divorce certificate was to provide the freedom for the divorced person to remarry without penalties of any kind. So, when Jesus and Paul restrict that freedom to remarry for some specific reason, we have to be very careful and pay very close attention to the context so that we don't universalize a limitation that was intended to be specific to a particular situation. When we look at Jesus' statements and recognize an allowance for divorce when a husband is the victim of his wife's sexual immorality and vice versa, according to Mark 10, we may be surprised when we see Paul allowing for divorce on a completely different grounds. However, if we hold them together, we might actually be able to see that there's something in common between the two cases. In both the case of sexual immorality and the case of abandonment by an unbeliever, Paul's context in 1 Corinthians 7, 
we can see that each of these destroys one of the fundamental aspects of marriage that we mentioned from Genesis 2. Sexual immorality destroys the bonds of marriage by tearing apart the one flesh union of a husband and wife. And abandonment destroys the cleaving aspect of marriage, the permanent commitment to stay with one's spouse for life. So, when evaluating marriages today, whether our own or in counseling situations, if a spouse is doing something that threatens those fundamental aspects of marriage, we might be looking at a situation where divorce is an acceptable thing to do. Jesus' teaching, as well as God's law in Deuteronomy 24, gives the right to divorce to the victim of unfaithfulness. In many marriages today, this might not be straightforward and obvious because the couple has gone on with unresolved conflict or unaddressed neglect for a long time without any help. But the cases of sexual immorality, abandonment, and also abuse are usually quite clear. In these cases, especially when the guilty party refuses to repent, divorce is one possible valid, legitimate way of moving on for the Christian. But, as John Frame writes, divorce is not a blessing that we should seek by meeting various conditions. It is part of the curse. And until it becomes a necessity, we should do all in our power to prevent it from happening. The divorce itself in these cases does not destroy the marriage does not sever what God has joined. The immorality, the abandonment, the abuse has already destroyed what God has joined. The divorce becomes an expression of God's mercy to allow the victim to experience freedom and growth in the future. To quote John Frame once more, divorce can be a necessary recognition of a separation of heart that has already taken place. It is sometimes like disconnecting life support to someone who is already dead. Divorce, when performed according to biblical principles, is not sin, but the result of sin. In that vein, I wanted to say a word about those who might advise someone to pursue separation or divorce, even in the case where adultery or abuse has been observed or reported. Be much slower to jump to the conclusion that divorce is the necessary solution. When you rush to say to a hurting wife, you should just leave him, you are acting like the Pharisees. They not only allowed for divorce for a variety of reasons, they commanded it. Roman law even insisted that in the case of adultery, a spouse must issue a certificate of divorce. Jesus simply says that it's not sinful if you must walk that road. Biblical counselor Brad Hambrick has an important word here. He says, a decision about divorce for after adultery or because of abuse is a journey to be walked more than a question to be answered. Questions, once answered, are clear. Journeys, even with a sense of directions, can be hard. 
Questions can be answered quickly if you know the right answer. Journeys take time even when you know the desired destination. We can do great harm to hurting people by jumping too quickly to advise divorce, not really understanding the damage that divorce itself inevitably does, especially when children are involved. Unfortunately, in the case of abuse, the Bible sometimes becomes a tool that traps a victim in the abuse. An abused wife might believe, I can't leave this abusive situation because the Bible says that God hates divorce. And an abusing husband might reinforce his pattern of abuse by saying, the Bible says you must submit to me. Author Justin Holcomb provides a much better, more biblically balanced word. God never calls us to tolerate violence if it can be avoided. We are not called to passively accept every form of unjust pain that comes our way. He says that right after discussing passages from 1 Peter that are usually used to teach the opposite. Biblical counselor Darby Strickland adds to this, but we are not called to submit to and accept rampant destructive behavior. In fact, the opposite is true. We are supposed to help our spouses to know, serve, love, and be more like Jesus. That means limiting their ability to sin against us. Sometimes a separation is the only way for this to happen. When abuse is present, wives should resist domination. And, if it is safe for them to do so, expose their husband's sin. This is an act of grace for their husbands. Sometimes, drastic drastic measures must be taken in order to bring an abuser to the point of admitting and repenting from his sin. Measures as drastic as cutting off a hand or gouging out an eye. Helping an abused spouse take their children pack their bags and flee to a safe place is hard. It's sometimes necessary. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're on the road to divorce. But it might. As we saw at the beginning of our time this morning, Proverbs 6 lists seven things God hates. And abusers are often guilty of all seven. In the case of abuse, getting help quickly is important. Author Kathleen Nielsen writes, an abused spouse in a church body should never suffer alone. An abusive spouse in a church body should never be left alone. In the case of abuse, it is the responsibility of the church to address that abuse thoroughly, seeking the safety and well-being of church members and and also involving civic authorities when laws have been broken. Adultery... Abuse and abandonment clearly break the marriage covenant and may provide legitimate grounds for divorce. And the divorced Christian must, would then be free to remarry another Christian. However, divorce is not the only option. When a marriage is suffering, crumbling, and deteriorating, revisiting Matthew 18, previous chapter, might just provide the needed grace for transformation. It's hard, though, especially in a marriage where one spouse is hard-hearted. Nevertheless, a victimized spouse can extend forgiveness with God's help. I have read stories and I have known friends who have endured affairs, abuse, and neglect, and yet extended grace, forgave, and reconciled in such a way that 
Their marriages are happy and healthy now. But God is very realistic and practical as He takes into account our weakness and our sin. God knows what the pain of broken marriage feels like. God knows what the pain of divorce feels like. God is on the side of victims. And His law and Jesus' teaching and Paul's preaching provides healing and grace for people in broken marriages. If you're experiencing pain in your marriage, I plead with you to seek help. God doesn't want you to suffer alone. Sometimes two sinners living together are going to have a hard time living together. Makes sense. If we venture back to Matthew 18, 15 to 20, and apply the principles there to the sin in our marriages, we can get the relief we need and the reconciliation that we want before we get to the point of thinking divorce is the only way things can get better. The church is here to help. We want marriages to thrive. Now, as we return to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19, we get His disciples' reaction to what they heard Jesus say to the Pharisees and His response highlighting the value of singleness They've understood him to say that God intends marriages to be permanent and only very limited and rare situations should result in a legitimate end to a marriage. And they're shocked. Look at their response and Jesus' answer in verses 10 to 12. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. The disciples might be responding facetiously, or they might be revealing their own chauvinistic selfishness. They had very much been fond of the idea that they might be able to more easily get out of their marriages should their wives prove disappointing. The Jews of Jesus' day elevated marriage very, very highly, contrary to what we see here with the Pharisees. But the disciples are so shocked that Jesus would suggest that once they were married, they shouldn't try to get out of a difficult or unpleasant marriage like other rabbis were saying they could. Jesus actually agrees with their statement, whether they meant it sarcastically or not. It is better for some people not to marry. This statement alone would have shocked the crowds, and it's probable that the disciples are asking this question of Jesus after they've left the crowds behind. Mark 10.10 speaks of them entering a house and questioning Jesus further about what he had said about marriage and divorce. Jesus uses the image of a eunuch to speak of singleness. Eunuchs from birth are those who are born with some kind of damage or deformity to their reproductive organs. Men who were made eunuchs by other men refer to the common practice of castrating certain slaves in king's palaces who would be guarding or serving the women of the family. A man making himself a eunuch is not a known practice in the ancient world, or at least it's incredibly rare. Perhaps you can imagine why. Jesus is here elevating the value of singleness. Self-unicizing, to invent a word, means choosing to remain single. Choosing to remain single. 
And he speaks of this choice as requiring a gift from God. Not everyone can receive this saying, the saying that it is not better, it is better not to marry. Jesus himself was a eunuch in this sense. Jesus didn't marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So, certainly, any among his followers who would choose to forego marriage in order to better focus energies into serving the church and the world have received a valuable gift. Paul speaks of both marriage and singleness as gifts from God. Now, I suspect that some of you who are currently single might not view your state as a gift from God. Both Paul and Jesus are referring to choices people make, volunteering to remain single for the kingdom of heaven. So I don't know whether God has given you, single person, this gift of singleness. If you desire to be married, here is my advice. Pursue healthy relationships and pray for God to grant you a spouse. But as long as you are single, may I also gently encourage you to pour yourself out into ministry. Pour out your life in serving other people. That's the blessing of singleness, according to Paul. Single people are free from the anxieties about how to please a spouse. Talk to a married person if you want to know about those anxieties. We can all tell you. Don't make the mistake that many single people do. Don't isolate yourself, withdraw from community, and waste your life. And don't remain on the fringes of community, drowning in your own loneliness, even as you watch everyone else seemingly enjoying life. Give your life to serving others with others. Jesus says that those who receive the gift of singleness receive the gift of living life to the fullest without a spouse. They're a rare breed and a great value for the kingdom. Marriage truly is magnificent. Singleness also has a special, unique value. Whether we're married or single, we need the grace of our Lord to equip us for the trials of life. If we are married, we need the help that God provides through other people to remain faithful to the vows we made in public with other people before God. If we're single, we need the help that God provides through other people to remain faithful and fruitful in our labors and to overcome the loneliness that can be overwhelming. That's what the church can be, a community of people where married and single folks alike enjoy sharing life together, serving together, learning together, growing together. And when the darkness of divorce casts its shadow, whether from someone's past or because of current difficulties, may we be a church that provides love, support, and healing by the power of God's Spirit at work in us. Would you join me in praying specifically for the marriages of our church? Father, thank you for these hard words. You've given us more than a statement about your hatred of divorce in the scriptures. And so we seek to take the whole counsel of God into our perspective. 
Would you massage your word deep into our hearts so that we live in such a way, whether married or single, that praises you and worships you and gets involved in each other's lives in practical ways. We pray that you would bring help and healing to marriages in our church where husbands and wives are hurting, where there's pain and brokenness. There's nothing beyond your power to heal. Would you help us to learn how to reconcile? Would you help us to learn how to pursue the kind of help that we need when things are broken? Help us to lay aside our pride and be able to cry out that we need help. And we pray that you would make us all faithful to notice when there's brokenness in families and to be ready to move in and provide whatever help is needed. Give us the grace to change, to grow. And may we build more faithful, stronger families together. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the way that you depict that even in terms of marriage, the intimacy that we might have with you even now is beautifully displayed in a marriage. And so we pray, Father, that all of us would come to a greater understanding of what that looks like and that we would pursue faithfulness to you in our relationship to you with all diligence. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his death on the cross that pays for our sin and our failure to be faithful our failures in our marriages, our failures to use our singleness for your glory. You've covered that and provided mercy and grace. Now we ask that you would work by your spirit to change us and to grow us, to conform us more and more into the image of your faithful son. Thank you for being with us and painting such a beautiful picture in scripture of what marriage can be like as we offer forgiveness to each other, as we extend grace to each other and put the, the gospel on display even where there's brokenness, especially where there's brokenness. Thank you for all that you do for us in our family life and in our marriages and in our church life together. Help us to be more mindful and express our gratitude more frequently. You do so much for us. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.